Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is entitled, From Ashes to Fire, and is for the first Sunday in Lent, 2007, based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 25th, 2007. Our essay this week is a guest essay by Nora Gallagher, the author of the newly released novel, Changing Light, and the author of the bestsellers, Things Seen and Unseen, and then also the book, Practicing Resurrection. Nora is a member of Trinity Episcopal Church, Santa Barbara, and a layperson licensed to preach by the Bishop of Los Angeles. She was a postulate for holy orders in the Diocese of Los Angeles, but then decided to remain a member of the laity. So here's From Ashes to Fire by author Nora Gallagher. Today, the first Sunday in Lent, we join Jesus in the desert, where he spent 40 days wrestling with Satan's temptations. Our pilgrimage began on Ash Wednesday, when ashes were imposed on our foreheads. Lent is a journey in which each step we take matches one in the Gospels. Victor Turner, the celebrated anthropologist, said that on a pilgrimage, the whole of geography takes on symbolic meaning. So Lent is like a slow dance in which each movement reflects a movement elsewhere. Each step is matched by another in the parallel gospel world. The geography begins in the desert. In the crucible of heat and sand, Jesus was trying to figure out, as Frederick Buechner writes, what it meant to be Jesus. In the weeks that follow, Luke will recount what Jesus did later. He walked from town to town, sat down at the table with a tax collector, healed a leper, ate grain on the Sabbath, used the wrong fork. It's not at all clear to me that he knew just who he was, as in, I'm the Son of God. Rather, it looks more like he discovered, step by step, more about himself as time wore on, as he walked and waited and healed. At the end of Lent, on Palm Sunday, we will walk with Jesus into Jerusalem, the city where crowds welcomed him on the Sabbath by spreading palms under his feet, and where he was executed by the week's end. Lent is a journey towards the cross, and towards a tomb, and the mysterious, unending joy of those who found that tomb empty. So finally, on the eve of Easter, we will light the tall white paschal candle in a darkened church, and a deacon will sing the light of Christ. Lent is a journey, as a biblical scholar put it, from ashes to fire. We are people of the word and of the story. The essence of healing, perhaps the essence of what we mean by resurrection, is to take the chaos and trauma of our lives and to rewrite them. When we find a compassionate listener, either in our own hearts or outside ourselves, in someone else, in therapy, in analysis, with a priest or a best friend, we have the chance to rework the material of our lives. 
to create a so-called fiction, if you will, meaning not a false story, but a narrative with purpose and meaning. I ponder the resurrected Jesus, and I think about how, out of death, new life was rewritten and revealed. The promise of the Lenten journey, from Ash Wednesday's ashes to Easter's fire, is that we will find, by entering into the readings, our own unfolding stories. The goal is to bring their geographies into the self, to bend beneath them, to allow the soul to find its narrative within them. Let's take a look at today's Gospel. The temptations laid before Jesus in the desert. Satan put before him these three temptations. If you are hungry, change stones into bread. If you're the Son of God, leap from a tower and rely on angels to rescue you. If you bow down before me, all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. These temptations once seemed too archaic for my modern mind, but as I've thought about them over the years, they've come to represent things all too familiar. Satan's temptations represent magic, rescue, fame, and power. They beckon me every day of my life. Just around the corner, I think, lies happiness. A new lover will provide lasting bliss. If I had what she has, then I would be... These are the fantasies, the illusions that suck out my vitality that keep me from discovering my own rich reality. To come to terms with illusion is one of the great jobs of our lives, to discern what is fantasy and what is reality, what is dead and what is alive, what is a narcotic and what is food, what are stones and what is bread. It is dangerous, wrenching, and unavoidable. In the desert, Jesus fought for his life. What was asked of Jesus is what is asked of us today, that we give up illusion, its false promises, and its addicting inertia, and come to our senses, come to living bread. And if you think about it, Jesus will accomplish each one of these temptations, but he'll do it by taking a different course. He will change stones into bread. A few loaves of bread and five fish will feed 5,000. He will hurl himself from a tower and be caught by angels by giving up his life on the cross. He will be worshipped, but by humbling himself as a servant. If, instead of waiting for stones to be changed to bread, we share the food we have, if, rather than waiting for the fantasy job or fantasy lover, we engage the people and work of our own lives, if, rather than waiting for rescue, we lay down our lives for our friends, then we depart the world of deadly illusion for a living reality in which, quote, every day the real caress replaces the ghostly lover, as Ananias Nin put it. In my new novel, Changing Light, two of my characters talk about this gospel. 
Eleanor is a painter living in New Mexico, returning to church after a long absence. Leo is a physicist, AWOL from the atom bomb project at the secret city of Los Alamos. She's found him lying by the river. She doesn't know who he is, but something compels her to look after him. He's been in her house for a while, and they've begun to talk. On Easter, Eleanor returns from church and checks on Leo. She says, Do you know the gospel story that's told at the beginning of Lent? I'm afraid not, Leo replied. Eleanor laughed. Why would you know it? Then she tells him about the gospel we've just heard. That's only vaguely familiar, says Leo. I was thinking about it today in church, she said, that the resurrection, that Easter actually, is like changing stones into bread. Only differently than how the devil had in mind. I mean, I think the devil wanted a kind of magic act, and Jesus wouldn't do it. But if you think of Jesus rising from the dead, it's like finding life again after death. Or, I don't know how exactly to say this, but painting is like that sometimes. Sometimes you can work and work and work and nothing goes well, and then suddenly it happens, as if by itself stones turn into bread. But it takes an element of, I don't know, seeing, I guess, and, and then grace. Leo smiled at her. That is at once very foreign to me and yet very nice, he said. It's certainly the first time anyone has said anything to me about the resurrection of Jesus that made any sense. Eleanor grinned. Oh, Lordy, she said shyly. Then Leo says, this is what we were doing, and then almost to himself, or maybe the opposite. What? How does that story go on? I mean, the one about Satan and Jesus, Leo asked. Eleanor replied, Satan suggests that if Jesus is the Son of God, that he jump from a high tower and God's angels will save him. And after that? Well... Jesus declines the invitation. What happens to Satan? He departs, said Eleanor. The gospel says, until an opportune time. Always until another time, Leo replied. In this narrative, Leo was thinking about the atomic bomb, of the magic act of changing a collection of theories into a weapon and he was pondering whether that was changing stones to bread, or maybe its opposite. Illusion is not only a personal problem, it's a collective temptation. We are asked, as citizens also, to discern the difference between illusion and reality, stones and bread. I think of God as the ultimate compassionate listener, I can bring all of my chaos and trauma to him, the ways I whine, complain, and duck the truth. Lent is set aside to do just that, bring it all to consciousness. It's not easy to face our darkness, our own ashes. We are all going to come up short. I know that I am. 
As a friend said, when she wanted to take a day off from work, she just said, I'm going to call in ugly. We're all going to have to call in ugly during Lent, and that's why we're doing it together. I once asked a friend of mine who's a therapist how to stop projecting onto others my own fears and weakness. In other words, how to love. And she said, you must enlarge your capacity to suffer. The work of Lent is to rewrite the story by enlarging our capacity to take in the parts that we always want to leave out, the parts that aren't so pretty, that make us less than heroic, but certainly more real. If I had what she has, I would be? I would be her, not me. If I was famous, I would be still me, only famous, with another whole set of problems. If I had a new lover, then what would I be? Blissful for a while, and then he too would probably neglect to pick up the towels in the bathroom. I make light of it, but we know how much we have to accept about ourselves, all the hard truths that will cause us to enlarge our own humanity and write a new, and I would say, a better story. And so, in Lent, accepting the ashes will enlarge our capacity to suffer. And, of course, with that work will come an enlarged capacity for joy. There's the fire. From Ashes to Fire by Nora Gallagher and for further reflection, she offers these questions. During Lent, when I confess, says Nora, I've been focusing on just one sin, one creepy thing I did or didn't do, a thing done or left undone, rather than trying to bring everything bad to God all at once. You might try this. Number two, how does having someone listen to us help us to rewrite our stories? And number three, what are your ashes? What is your fire? For books this week, I review Margaret Bullitt Jonas. Her book is called Christ's Passion, Our Passions, Reflections on the Seven Last Words from the Cross. Cambridge, Massachusetts, Cowley Publications, 2002, 92 pages. This slender volume on the seven last words of Christ would be the perfect companion for the Lenten season in general, or Holy Week in particular. Originally presented as a sermon series for Good Friday at Boston St. Paul Cathedral in 2002, Bullet Jonas has added questions for prayer at the end of each meditation, making it ideal for personal reflection adult Sunday school, small group fellowships, or any number of other venues. In the introduction, she also suggests and explains three types of prayer that one might use with these reflections. Number one, Ignatian contemplation. Number two, Lectio Divina. And then number three, what she calls grounding in the cross. Bullet Jonas is an Episcopal priest, writer, environmental activist, retreat leader, and spiritual director 
She also earned her PhD from Harvard in comparative literature. So she brings her considerable skills, gifts, practical insights, and life experiences to bear on the last words of Jesus. Those seven last words are number one, Father, forgive them. Number two, today you will be with me in paradise. Number three, woman, behold your son. Number four, my God, my God. Number five, I thirst. Number six, it is finished. And number seven, Father, into your hands. As she observes in her introduction, when someone we love is dying, we hang on to every word. While she examines these precious words of Christ, she urges us to let them examine us. In the words of Karl Barth, Scripture is just as much God's word about us as human words about them. Thus, in this little gem of a book, Bullet Jonas points us not merely to theological information, but to a deeper Christian formation. Margaret Bullet Jonas, Christ's Passion, Our Passions, Reflections on the Seven Last Words from the Cross. For film this week, I review The Beauty Academy of Kabul, an Afghan movie from the year 2004. In 2003, six American hairdressers opened a beauty school in the bombed-out ruins of post-Taliban Kabul. Director Liz Merman follows this venture from the grand opening and selection of the first class to the graduation dinner three months later. Two of the volunteers, Seema and Shaima, had immigrated from Afghanistan to the United States more than 20 years earlier, and their cultural reconnection is emotionally powerful. It's been 20 years since I was here, observed Seema, but the country has regressed 100 years. Two other volunteers are positively obnoxious. They can't understand why these Afghan women would not wear makeup, not drive, or why they were afraid to anger their husbands. One of them begins classes with yoga meditation as the Afghan women sit in a circle and giggle. Another gushes that their project is not just about hair and makeup, but about, quote, healing the country, end quote. The real heroes that make this film worth watching, of course, are the Afghan women themselves. Our men have backwards mentalities, one of them laments. I found the symbolism of a beauty parlor run by culturally insensitive American do-gooders in a conservative Muslim country rich with paradox. Was this project one of genuine feminist liberation or self-congratulatory cultural imperialism? A little of both, I thought but I was glad that I watched it in English and in Afghan with subtitles. The Beauty Academy of Kabul from the year 2004. And finally, for poetry this week, 
we've posted a poem entitled The Incarnate One by Edwin Murr, who lived from 1887 to 1959. Edwin Murr was a poet and critic born in Deerness on the Orkney Island, Scotland. The Incarnate One The windless northern surge, the seagull scream, and Calvin's kirk crowning the barren bray. I think of Giotto, the Tuscan shepherd's dream, Christ, man, and creature in their inner day. How could our race betray the image and the incarnate one unmake, who chose this form and fashion for our sake? The word made flesh here is made word again, a word made word in flourish and arrogant crook. See there King Calvin with his iron pen, in God three angry letters in a book, and there the logical hook on which the mystery is impaled and bent into an ideological argument. There's better gospel in man's natural tongue, and truer sight was theirs outside the law, who saw the far side of the cross among the archaic peoples in their ancient awe. In ignorant wonder saw the wooden cross tree on the bare hillside, not knowing that there a god suffered and died. The fleshless word growing will bring us down, Pagan and Christian man alike will fall. The auguries say the white and black and brown, the merry and the sad, theorist, lover, all invisibly will fall. Abstract calamity, save for those who can build their cold empire on the abstract man. A soft breeze stirs, and all my thoughts are blown far out to sea and lost. Yet I know well the bloodless word will battle for its own, invisibly in brain and nerve and cell. The generations tell their personal tale. The one has far to go past the mirages in the murdering snow. Edwin Murr, the Incarnate One. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 25th, 2007, the first Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.